Well, you can turn to Jonah chapter four. That's where we will be this morning. While you're turning there, I wanted to make a couple announcements, remind you of a couple things that are going on in the life of our church. If you're not aware of it, we are looking at a uh, new pastor for the Southwood campus. We're candidating a guy named Jason Weezapoppy, um, and we're going to be voting on him August 1st. I just wanted to remind you guys that if you go to our website, grace-bible.org, at the bottom of the page, there's a link where you can see a video interview that we did with Jason and his wife, Jamie, so that you can get to know them a little better. You also have a link to his resume and the job description. So if you're a member of this church, or if you're not, we'd love to have you get to know Jason and his wife, Jamie, a little bit uh, in preparation for us to vote on them August 1st. Now, I'm really excited about Jason coming on staff because it's perfect timing because the other announcement is we're starting a second service at the Southwood campus this fall. So it's a service designed to help ease some of the crowding at 11 o'clock that goes on here at the Anderson campus. Uh, We'll be starting at the end of August. And so let me invite you, if you would like to escape some of the crowd and difficult parking that you find at the Anderson campus at the end of August, we would love to see you over at the Southwood campus. And you can come for a few weeks if you just want to escape the crowds for a little bit, or you can come long term. We'd love to see you. Um, So anyways, those are a couple things that are coming up in the life of our church. Now this week, as I was preparing Jonah chapter four, as I was getting into the text, it reminded me of this movie that I saw about a year ago. I was over at my parents' house and my dad had gotten this movie that he was really excited about my brother and I seeing. It was a British movie a British spy thriller about a modern-day MI5 agent. And it was, uh, it was a tense movie. It was exciting. It's a, a good guy, this agent, but he'd been framed for a horrible crime he didn't commit. And as the movie develops, it gets more and more exciting. The plot thickens, and it builds up to this climax right at the end where the good guy is going to expose the bad guy. But right at the last moment, the bad guy gets away. The good guy ends up killing an innocent man, and then with all hope lost, kills himself. And then the credits roll. And it's at that moment I realized I really don't like British movies. I, I, don't, I don't know what I was doing watching that. What a horrible way for a movie to end. I just invested two hours of my life in this and then the good guy kills himself. What are you doing? That's crazy. I'm an American. I expect my movies to end on a happy note. In fact, it, it doesn't have to end super happy. Just not suicide. That can't be the end of the movie. We Americans expect happy endings. So here we are today at the end of the book of Jonah. Chapter four, how should we expect the book of Jonah to end? Well, just to recap for you, okay, chapter one, you've got a disobedient prophet. Chapter two, you have a repentant prophet. Chapter three, we looked at last week, what happens? Well, God restores his repentant prophet. He empowers his prophet and Jonah goes and does this heroic ministry. He takes his life into his hands and proclaims a dangerous message in a dangerous city and God's works in an amazing way and all of Nineveh falls on its knees in repentance and God spares them of calamity. It's like one of the greatest days of advancement of the kingdom of God on earth ever recorded, the biggest revival ever. And so you would expect we get to chapter four and we're gonna get a happy ending. Such a high note in chapter three. Well, if a Hollywood script writer would have written Jonah chapter four, then what would we find? Well, the chapter would open with Jonah looking out and seeing a beautiful girl. Witty, intelligent, surprise, surprise. She actually is head over heels in love with Jonah. So, so they hop on his horse, they share a brief kiss, they ride off into the sunset and happily ever after rolls onto the screen. But Jonah was not written in Hollywood. It's a lot more like a British movie. Look with me, chapter four, verse one of the book of Jonah. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? 
Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. This is not a happy ending to the book of Jonah. Jonah is shockingly angry at God. Now, you you don't necessarily get that in the English translation, but when you get in the Hebrew, you see this is intense anger that Jonah feels at God. Verse one literally reads in Hebrew, but it was evil to Jonah with great evil and he burned with anger. When you wanna emphasize something in Hebrew, you repeat it. And so Jonah repeats the the word raha, evil, twice. He's, He's trying to show God, God, I am as angry as I could possibly be with you. I am intensely angry. And then the author adds at the end of the verse, just to kick it home, he's burning inside with anger. He is enraged at God. He's so angry, in fact, that verse three, he really would rather die. He would rather be dead than live in a world that makes him so enraged, so incredibly angry. Now what's happened? Jonah, where's our happy ending? Why are you so angry? What has made you so upset with God? Well, look at the context, but it greatly displeased Jonah. What is it? Well, look back up. Previous verse, chapter three, verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Jonah is angry with God because God had mercy on Nineveh. Jonah can't stand that God shared grace with Nineveh. Now, why is that? Why does Jonah hate the Ninevites so much? Well, a little bit of background. Nineveh was part of the kingdom of Assyria. Jonah was a member of the kingdom of Israel and Israel and Assyria didn't really get along ever. Um, Unfortunately for Israel, Assyria was the strong one. So throughout Jonah's lifetime, Assyria oppressed Israel. They demanded what was called tribute from Israel. That's more than just taxation. Basically, they demanded a regular yearly payment of tons of money and goods. The, The idea behind this payment was they would keep Israel, they would keep this subservient nation poor and weak. So the Assyrians robbed Israel every year of all their wealth to keep the Israelites poor and sad and subservient. So no wonder Jonah hates them. But there's another reason for him to hate the Assyrians. You see, when Jonah lived, he was aware of the prophecies of Hosea and Amos. Hosea said, 11.5, they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. Jonah knew that God had prophesied through Hosea and Amos that because of idolatry, the nation of Israel would be judged. They would be defeated and they would be exiled and God's instrument of wrath would be the Assyrians. Actually, this comes true 30 years later. The the repentance in Nineveh apparently didn't last real long. 30 years passes. They're tired of this whole peaceful life thing. So they pick up their weapons and where do they march? Israel. And they, they wipe them out and they take them off into exile, 722 BC. So Jonah knew that was coming. Jonah knew that the Assyrians were gonna be the hand of God's judgment upon Israel. So like all Israelites, he hated them. He hated the Assyrians. They currently oppressed his people. In the future, they would exile his people. He hated them. He could not stomach the thought of God extending grace to the Ninevites. In fact, verse two reveals to us for the first time in the whole book that this was the reason for Jonah's disobedience in chapter one. Look back at verse two. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. 
I I ran away from you. I disobeyed you, not out of cowardice, not out of fear, but because I knew this is what you would do. You would go share grace with my enemies. How did I know that? Well, he quotes the book of Exodus. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Look at each of those words, gracious. This is just a quote of Exodus 34, gracious. It means to spare someone from harm. They deserve harm, but you spare them from that harm. Compassionate, it's, it's the word for a woman's womb. It's related to that Hebrew word. It means the love of a mother for her infant child. That's the love that God has towards the nations of the world. Slow to anger in Hebrew, literally long of nose. That's kind of an odd phrase, but you think about it, you get angry and your face turns red. So the idea, God is saying, I have a long nose. It takes a long time for my face to turn red in anger. I'm patient towards people. I'm abounding in loving kindness. Chesed in Hebrew, it means faithful love. I'm unconditionally loving towards others. I abound in unconditional love towards sinners like the Ninevites. Finally, I relent concerning calamity. That's exactly what he did in chapter three, verse 10. He withheld the calamity that the Ninevites deserved. This is what God revealed of himself back in Exodus 34, a very famous passage in the history of the Old Testament. Moses asked to see God, so God passes in front of Moses, and as he does, he declares to Moses who he is, and this is what God declares about himself. Now, what I want you to notice in verse two, notice Jonah's theology is perfect. Jonah understands God accurately. Like all good Israelites, he had already memorized Exodus 34. He knew who God is. He knew what God is like. He understood God's character and he hated it. He hated that God would act this way towards the Assyrians, towards his enemies. He hated it so much that he did anything he could to prevent God from acting in line with his character. He ran away the opposite direction to Tarshish to get away, to prevent God from being able to show grace to the Ninevites. Because remember what we said last week, God calling Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, that was not an act of judgment, it was an act of grace. If God simply wanted to wipe him out, he wouldn't have sent Jonah. He would have just sent down fire and brimstone on him. He sends Jonah in grace and Jonah knows He knows that God is trying to use him as an agent of grace and mercy to his enemies and he can't stomach the thought. It's treason to Jonah. I can't be the agent of grace to these people who are oppressing my people. So he runs away in disobedience to God. This is why Jonah is so angry because he knew that God would act in line with his character and sure enough, God did. That's really what Jonah is summarizing in verses two through three. He's saying, God, I disobeyed you, not out of fear, not out of cowardice, but because I knew you would mess everything up. I knew you would show grace to these horrible, wicked enemies of mine. So I disobeyed, I ran away, but you dragged me back. You made me come over here. You made me share this message and everything I feared has come true. God, you have ruined my life. You have made me betray my people. I am so incredibly angry, I want to die. I would rather die than live in a world run by such a horrible God as you. That's what Jonah's saying. He is incredibly angry. These are serious words. Jonah is throwing down the gauntlet before God. He is shockingly angry with God. He is challenging God. God, you are wrong. I hate what you have done. I did my best to prevent it. I can't stand what you've done towards my enemies. Now, how will God respond to Jonah's challenge? 
Fortunately for Jonah, God is long of nose because Jonah's deserving a spanking at this point. (laughs) He's in the wrong yet again in the book. He just keeps returning to the wrong. Um, But God is patient. He is loving. He is kind. And so instead of just wipe Jonah out, he begins a lesson. He begins to instruct Jonah, to open Jonah's eyes, to see life as it truly is. That's the rest of chapter four. Verses four through 11, God is teaching Jonah a lesson about life, a lesson about reality. And that lesson begins with a question in verse four. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? This is actually really the key question of the book. It appears in verse four and then again in verse nine. What God is asking is, Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry? In other words, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry with what I've done? Jonah, which of us is in the right here? Was it right for me to show mercy to Nineveh? If so, then you shouldn't be angry. Or is it right for you to be angry? If so, then I shouldn't have shown mercy. Jonah, which of us is right? Let's find out. Now, God doesn't force an answer from Jonah at this point. He just presents the question. And then he begins to develop an object lesson for Jonah. He's going to use creation to provide an object lesson for Jonah. That starts in verse 5. We get the setting in verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Okay, so Jonah entered Nineveh from the west. He marches through it. He does his ministry thing and he heads out to the east. And he sits down and he waits to see what? What, what is Jonah sitting down for? He is hoping that God will change his mind. He's hoping that God will wise up and realize what a mistake he's made and bring wrath upon Nineveh. That's what Jonah's hoping for here. He's not repented yet. He's hoping that God will wise up. And so Jonah's waiting to see if, if judgment, if wrath will come to Nineveh. But what happens? Well, God begins to work in Jonah's life to teach him a lesson through circumstances. Look in verse six. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Now, a couple of pieces of background for you here. Um, Nineveh was in modern day Iraq. So Jonah heads out of the city. What, what kind of um, terrain is he sitting in? Desert. It's really hot. It's really uncomfortable. So he builds a shelter. Um, but if you think about the desert of Iraq, there, there's not a lot of wood there. Uh, this shelter is built of rocks and mud and doesn't have a roof. He doesn't have anything to build a roof with. So it's really uncomfortable sitting in the desert in, in the hot months, which is probably when Jonah's there. Average high temperature is 110 degrees Fahrenheit. So Jonah is really, really uncomfortable. So what does God do? Well, again, Jonah deserves a spanking, but instead God gives him grace. That's verse six, day number one of the lesson, God gives Jonah grace. He appoints this plant to grow. And the the verb appoint, it's very significant in the book of Jonah. You saw it at the beginning of chapter two when God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. You see same word here, God appoints a plant. In a couple verses, he's gonna appoint a worm and then appoint a wind. So it's a word that reminds us throughout the book of Jonah that God is absolutely sovereign over creation that he has a right to do anything he pleases because all of creation belongs to him and obeys him. So God is appointing creation. He's working sovereignly in creation to teach his prophet a lesson. And the lesson begins with grace. God appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah. Now we don't know what kind of plant this was. It's working in miraculous ways that it grows up so fast. Uh, What's significant about the plant is that the Hebrew conveys it's a tiny plant. It's not a tree. It's not something huge and long-standing. It's just a little plant, grows up over Jonah's head, to provide him shade. Now, what is Jonah's response? Well, he rejoices. 
He's exceedingly happy about the plan. It's very interesting when you look at the Hebrew. It's the same construction from back in verse 1, a repetition of the words to emphasize it. Verse 1, Jonah is as angry as he could possibly be. It is evil with great evil to him. But now, verse 6, this plant, Jonah rejoices with great rejoicing. He's as happy as he could possibly be now. As angry as he could possibly be at God's mercy towards the Ninevites. As happy as he could possibly be about the plant. Now, let me ask you, does Jonah really love the plant? Well, no, not exactly. He's not a botanist. He's not pulling out his microscope and studying the plant and thinking, wow, that's an awesome plant. No, what he loves is his comfort that's provided by the plant. He loves what the plant does for him. It gives him shade. Jonah loves the comfort that the plant provides. He loves it so much that he can't express with any more passion how much he loves the plant. So day number one of the lesson, God gives Jonah grace. But God's got something different in mind in day number two. Look with me, verses seven and eight. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. So day number one of the lesson, God gives grace. Day number two, he gives justice. Because what did Jonah deserve from God? Well, not grace. He didn't deserve the plant. Jonah was in open rebellion against God. So God gives him on day number two. Okay, Jonah, here's what you deserve. I'm gonna withhold my grace from you. I'm gonna do for you just what you want me to do to the Ninevites. I'll give you justice. What is justice? Well, justice is I take the plant away. So God miraculously causes this worm to kill the plant. The plant withers. Then God appoints a wind to blow across Jonah to heat him up. And the sun beats down on him and he becomes faint and he becomes weak. And yet again, he calls out for his death. Just kill me. I don't want to be alive in a world that you're running, God. I can't stand life. What is God doing in this object lesson? He's helping Jonah to understand the consequences of grace and justice. Jonah, if I show up in grace, what's the result? Rejoicing, joy. When I show up in justice, what's the result? Pain, suffering, and misery. I bring both to you. Which of these do you want, Jonah? Which of these do you think people want? God has helped Jonah to understand the the choice between grace and justice. And now it's time for God to bring the lesson home. Jonah is weak. He's just experienced both grace and justice. And now God brings a lesson home by returning to the question. Verse nine, then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Same question. Jonah, are you right in your anger? If your anger is right, then that means I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done what I did to the plant. But if I'm in the right, if what I did to the plant was just, then Jonah, you have no right to be angry. So which of us is right, Jonah, you or me? Well, now God allows Jonah to respond. What is Jonah's answer? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Again, the the English misses the intensity of Jonah's reply. God, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm so right, you're so wrong that it would be better to me to die than to live in a world run by such a horrible God as you. I'd rather be dead than live in this world you've created because you are so wrong to me. You have done me such incredible wrong. Okay, so Jonah has given his answer. He has laid it on the table. God, you're wrong, I'm right. Now it's time for God to speak. Now God gives the lesson, the answer in verses 10 and 11. 
Now, again, God really could have just wiped Jonah out. That's what Jonah deserves. God decides to reason with him instead. God is going to draw a contrast. Jonah, here's what you care about. Let's look at that for a moment. And then let's compare that to what I care about. And let's see which of us is in the right. So verse 10, Jonah, here's what you care about. The Lord said, you had compassion, care on a plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Again, remember, it's not just a a plant, it's a tiny plant. Jonah, you placed your compassion, your love upon a tiny little plant. More than that, it was a plant that you didn't create, you didn't make it, you didn't grow it, you don't understand it, you know nothing about it. More than that, Jonah, it's a plant that lasted one day, bro, one day. That's what you care about, a plant that lasted 24 hours. Okay, so you believe that you are in the right for having compassion on a tiny plant that you didn't create that lasted one day. Okay, Jonah, what do I care about? Let's draw the contrast and see who's in the right. Verse 11. So should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? What What is God doing here? He's drawing a contrast. Okay, Jonah, you care about a tiny little plant. What do I care about? A great city. A city that is great because number one, it's been around for centuries. Your plant was around for 24 hours. My city's been around for centuries. Great because of how huge it is. Jonah, my city has 120,000 people in it. People whom I created. Jonah, I made them. I knit them together in their mother's womb. Why do I have womb compassionate love for these people? Because I made them. I knit them together. I created them. I made them. I've watched over them. I know them intimately. More than that, Jonah, I realize that these people did not enjoy the spiritual benefits in life that you did. Very significant here what God is saying, that their inability to tell left from right, that's not literal, it's a metaphor. It's talking about people who lack spiritual discernment. They are spiritually ignorant. Now, God isn't saying that the Ninevites are innocent. They are guilty before God. They know enough from their conscience to know that they shouldn't be violent and wicked. They know the basics. But unlike Jonah and the Israelites, The Ninevites never got the law. They never received God's revelation. They didn't know the name Yahweh. They didn't know God. They didn't have the temple in their country. The the Israelites could go to the temple, the place where God's glory dwelt on earth. The Assyrians had nothing like that. Every one of those 120,000 Ninevites, they all grew up in pagan homes. Jonah had grown up in a godly home where he was taught by his parents how to walk with the Lord. Every single Ninevite had grown up in a pagan home with wicked and violent parents. Now that doesn't excuse them, but God is explaining to Jonah, Jonah, can you not see why I long to give them grace? Because they haven't enjoyed the spiritual benefits that you have. They have lived horrible lives. How can I not long to show compassion to them? And then finally, the last nail in the coffin of Jonah's argument, what about all the animals, Jonah? Now, that's not a joke, and and God is not equating animals with people in the value chain of life. What he is saying to Jonah is, Jonah, let me show you just how foolish you're being, bro. Um, You care desperately about one little plant. Okay, what about me? Let's, Let's take all of the Ninevites and let's set them aside because, yeah, they are guilty. They may be ignorant, but they're guilty. But hey, Jonah, what about their hundreds of thousands of animals? Have those animals ever sinned? No, they haven't. They're innocent. If I bring justice upon Nineveh, what will happen to those hundreds of thousands of animals? They will all suffer and die. So Jonah, you're saying you're right 
to have great compassion for one little plant and I'm wrong to have compassion for hundreds of thousands of innocent animals? And the book ends right there. It ends. You don't get an answer from Jonah. Why is that? Because no answer's needed. Jonah's wrong. God's right. That's clear as day. God has answered for everyone to see. There's no reader who would get to the end of Jonah and not conclude, oh, Jonah, boy, (laughs) you're really wrong, brother. You're wrong. God is right. God in chapter four of Jonah exposes the error of Jonah's ways. He helps Jonah to see, Jonah, why is there no happy ending to your book? Well, Jonah, it's not my fault. And it's not the Ninevites' fault. They're doing what I want. Jonah, it's your own fault, bro. Jonah, you should be rejoicing. You should be experiencing joy. Remember the book of Luke. When one sinner repents, what does God do? He throws a party. Well, 120,000 sinners just repented. I don't know that there's ever been a bigger party than there was on this day in heaven. God's partying. Heaven is partying. Jonah's missing out. Jonah, there's no happy ending and it's your fault. You're the one who's in error. God exposes three errors that Jonah has made, three mistakes that have cost him his happy ending at the end of this book. The first mistake that Jonah made was that he insisted on mercy for him, justice for others. Mercy for me, justice for my enemies. God calls him out in the midst of that and he says, Jonah, do you realize what a hypocrite you are being? Jonah, do you realize that you are really not that different from the Ninevites? Jonah, remember chapter one, what'd you do, bro? You disobeyed me. What was the just consequence? Death. That's what you deserve. That's the same thing the Ninevites deserved. You're all the same. You all deserve death because you've all disobeyed me. But what did I do for you? I reached down in the depths of the sea and I rescued you in my grace and love. And now you think that it's not right for me to do the same thing for the Ninevites who are just like you? Bro, you're being a hypocrite. That's the first mistake that Jonah made, hypocrisy. Second error that Jonah makes. He chooses to love that which has little value. You can't read Jonah chapter four and not feel like Jonah's being a fool. Jonah, you wanna die because of what? Because of a plant? I have lots of dead plants in my backyard. None of that makes me wanna die. Jonah, you you wanna die because you're uncomfortable? You're a little hot today? That's why you wanna die? The guy has lost all perspective. Jonah has allowed his anger and bitterness and hatred to turn him into a fool. He doesn't see things as they are. He's foolish in this book because he's choosing to give his love to that which has little value. He doesn't love that of great value. He loves something of little value, this little tiny plant. Third mistake that Jonah makes, it costs him his happy ending. He chose to love his own comfort more than the lives of others. Ultimately, that's what Jonah's emotions boil down to. Great, exceeding love for the plant. Why? Not for the plant's sake, but because the plant gave him comfort. Jonah loves his comfort. Hatred to the Assyrians. Why? Because they threaten his comfort. They take away his comfortable life. So he hates them. Jonah's whole emotional state is based on selfishness. He loves what makes him comfortable. He hates what threatens his comfort. That's Jonah's life. He is at the center of his own universe. It is all about his comfort. That which threatens his comfort is hated. That which blesses his comfort is loved. Because Jonah loved his comfort more than he loved others. That's the third and final mistake he made. The third and final reason that Jonah lost his happy ending. Now you get to the end of the book of Jonah, this very sad ending. And the unavoidable, the inescapable application is, don't be like Jonah. That's the message of the book. Don't be like Jonah. It's really simple. Chapter four, don't be like Jonah. Don't follow the path of Jonah. That's the way to a joyless life. 
If you want to live a life of joy, don't follow Jonah. Now let's, let's take that idea and let's make it more specific. I want to turn each of these three mistakes that Jonah made into a question for us to ask ourselves. Okay, so now let's get applicational. Let's look at our own lives. So first mistake that Jonah made, let's turn it into a question. Do you desire mercy for everyone? Do you desire that God's grace would go to every single person on this planet? Now, it's very easy to say yes. Oh, of course I do. I want God to be gracious to everyone. But then you make it particular and it starts to get difficult. Do you desire God to show mercy and grace to the flagrantly immoral? To people who who flaunt their immorality and lead others into immorality? Well, that's just what the Ninevites were. So you desire God's grace for them? What about for murderers? Who those who have taken innocent life. That's what the Ninevites were. Do you desire God's grace for them? What about terrorists? Those who kill men, women, and innocent children. That's exactly what the Ninevites were. Do you desire God's grace for them? Well, it's, it's still somewhat easy when we're thinking generics out there. Now let's make it personal. Do you desire God's grace to go to that person who has hurt you most deeply in life? To that person who has scarred you, who has violated you, who has abused you. Maybe somebody who's done something that's unspeakable to you. Do you desire God's grace for them? This is an incredibly difficult application. If you find it challenging to imagine God acting in grace and mercy towards someone who has abused you, who has hurt you, who has scarred you. Join the club. That's one of the most difficult things in all of life to do. Let me give you some some applications, some ways to help if you find this challenging. Number one, I would encourage you just take some time to reflect upon who you are. It's always easier to show grace to others when we see ourselves accurately. Remember, Jonah and the Ninevites aren't that different. They all disobeyed and as a result, they all deserve death. Well, so do we. All of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled against God and the the amount of our rebellion may differ, but that doesn't matter. We are all rebels and all rebels against God deserve death. We all deserve God's judgment and wrath. That's why the gospel is such great news. God didn't give us what we deserve. God acted in accordance with his nature and he gave grace to those who didn't deserve it. He sent his son to die in our place. To take our penalty upon himself, he died for us and then rose from the dead. And now God offers to all of us the free gift of grace if we will simply believe. We are not that different from murderers, from terrorists, from horrible people. We are all sinners in the eyes of God. That's why the gospel is such great news. So the first way to be able to be forgiving and merciful to others who've hurt you is to see yourself accurately. You're really not that different from them. Second thing that's been helpful, very, very helpful actually in my own life, kind of a random sounding application. I want to suggest a book for you. If you find it very difficult to forgive evil people, difficult to forgive someone who has hurt you deeply, who has abused you, I encourage you to read the biography of Corey Ten Boom. It's called The Hiding Place. It's one of the best books I've ever read outside of scripture. Um, if you're not familiar with it, Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian during World War II. She had a love for the Jewish people, so she hid Jewish people as the Nazis came in to her town. She took great risks in doing that. She put her life on the limb to hide these Jewish people, to keep them safe and protected. About the midpoint of the book, things end up turning against her. She is caught 
by the Nazis. She is imprisoned. First of all, it's not, you know, the first part of the imprisonment is not too bad, but then she's taken to Germany and put in a concentration camp and it's horrible. Her father, her sister, Betsy, her, they're all taken away. Her father and Betsy both die at the hands of the Nazis. Corey miraculously, truly miracle that she makes it through World War II in a concentration camp. When you read that book, what, what you, you get to the end of the book and what you realize is what makes Corey remarkable is not her love for the Jewish people. They were the victims. That's understandable. What makes her remarkable? Her love for the Nazis. The end of World War II, she begins a ministry. She starts going throughout Europe, sharing the story of God's grace. And where does she go? She goes to Germany. 1947, she is proclaiming the gospel. She is sharing her story in post-World War II Germany. And at the end of her testimony, a man walks up who she clearly recognizes and who recognizes her. He's the guard from the showers of Ravensbrück, one of the worst, cruelest guards in the entire concentration camp. He humiliated and abused women. He comes up to her and he asks, can the grace of your Jesus forgive even a man like me? And Corey struggled with that. She struggled with that. She was silent for a moment, praying to God, how do I do this? And then she graciously decides to forgive the man. And they embrace, and and in the story it ends remarkably, she says of that moment, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. What Corey understood is that if she held on to bitterness and anger and hatred, the one to suffer would have been her. The Nazis aren't suffering from her hatred. They may be suffering from other things, but it's her who suffers. She loses out on the happy ending just like Jonah did. So she offers forgiveness. And what does she get from the Lord? A deeper experience of his love than she had ever experienced before. Corey did have a happy ending to her life. When you look at her life story, she had an incredibly joyful, happy ending to her life because she acted like God. She saw people like God did. She chose, like God, to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to the people who deserved it least. I encourage you to read that book. It's convicting, it's challenging, and to me, it's incredibly helpful. When I find it hard to forgive someone, I think about it and I realize, man, my life's a lot better than Corey's, and she was able to forgive, so surely I can. Really helpful, modern-day example of someone following the example of God. So that's the first application from this book. Do you desire to see God's grace and mercy for all people, even the evil, even the wicked, even those who've hurt you. Second application, let's take Jonah's second error and flip it into a question. Do you love that which has lasting value? Do you love things that are eternally significant or do you love things that are temporary? Do you love a plant like Jonah did? Now, this one was the really convicting one for me. Anytime I put together a sermon, there's some part of it that's going to be really inconvenient for me to preach because it's going to be really convicting. Um, And Jonah chapter four, this is what is convicting to me because unfortunately for me, um, in terms of preaching Jonah four, I got one of these two weeks ago. I've been waiting for an iPhone for a really long time. So I ordered it as soon as you could. Um, and, and I wanted it so much that every day I go online and I check to see if it had shipped. And by every day, I mean like eight times a day, I'm hopping online to see, okay, is it shipped? Is it shipped? Is it shipped? And then it arrives and it's, it's beautiful and it's awesome. And I've never had a phone as cool as this. Uh, and it's really fun to use and it's entertaining and it becomes really precious to me, but you know, it's made of glass. So I don't want any harm to come to it. So, so I want to go get a case, but you can't find the cases anywhere. So I order it. And now I'm back online every day looking to see, has my case shipped? Has my case shipped? Has my case shipped? And by, by every day, I'm I mean, eight times a day, I'm going online looking, see if the case is shipped. And all of a sudden I have to study Jonah chapter four and it occurs to me, dadgummit, there's my plant. (laughs) 
There it is. I too, just like Jonah, have chosen to love, to give my affection to that which has little value. And I was convicted and I had to take that to the Lord. And so if you're like me, if you find that you have affection, have love for that which has little value, maybe it's a phone, maybe it's a TV, maybe it's a car, maybe it's a house, maybe it's a wardrobe, whatever it is, if you have love for a possession, I encourage you take that before the Lord and just confess it. Be honest with God. That's the first step to growing in victory over this. Just go before God and say, God, I'm the one who's wrong. I'm wrong that what I love has little value. God, help me to see life as you do. Help me to love that which has lasting value. Help me to really love people, to rejoice in people. God will help you. He will grow you. He will challenge you to love that which he loves. Third application from Jonah. Look at his third error. Flip it into a question. Do you love others more than you love your own comfort? This is a really challenging one. It's what Jonah's error boils down to. He loved his comfort more than others. So he loved those or that which gave him comfort. He hated those or that which threatened his comfort. Is that true of us? Do we love our comfort more or people more? That will be revealed in the choices we make. We're constantly every day having to make choices between our comfort and the good of other people. God is consistently, constantly putting that choice in front of us. Okay, so you've got an awkward guy or gal in your life. They're socially awkward. It's hard to spend time with them. It's not enjoyable. You'd really rather not spend time with them. Are you going to love them enough to continue to pursue them? Yeah, they're not comfortable to spend time with. Are you going to set that aside and love them anyways? Continue to pursue them. Continue to initiate with them. Continue to welcome them into your circle, even though they're awkward. Will you love them more than you love your own comfort? It's revealed in how you treat your inconsiderate neighbor. The guy who is really a jerk. The guy who has been making your life miserable at home for years, the guy who you keep praying will get a transfer that will take him out of town. Are you willing to go give this uncomfortable, inconsiderate man love? Are you willing to show him grace and mercy? Now, he doesn't deserve it, but neither do you. Are you willing to give him grace and mercy? Uh, It's shown in how you treat that immoral coworker or fellow student, that person who offends you, who you really just can't stand to be around, are you willing to love them anyways? Not excusing their sin, but loving them in the midst of it anyways. Are you willing to continue to initiate and share with them the love of Jesus Christ? Jonah was not. Jonah was not willing to give God's grace to those who were uncomfortable. As a result, he forfeited his happy ending. He was trapped in a prison of his own anger and bitterness and selfishness and hatred, and it ruined the end of his life. We don't know if he ever repented. I I personally, I, I don't think he did. I think he stayed in this mindset and it robbed him of joy to the end of his life. Is that what you're going to choose? Or are you going to give love to those who don't deserve it? Are you going to give mercy and grace to those who are uncomfortable, to those who are difficult, to those who have hurt you? That's what God does. That's what he challenges us to do. If we will do that, we will experience joy and love and and a full and rich life. Let's pray for God's help to follow his example and not the example of Jonah. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and first and foremost, we rejoice that you are a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, who loves to, to relent of calamity. Lord, we are so grateful that that's your character because we need that, Lord. If that was not the kind of God that you are, then we would all perish. We would all be without hope. Thank you for making grace possible through the sacrifice of your son. Lord, we pray that now you would help us to extend that same grace and mercy 
to everyone in our lives. Even the uncomfortable people, even the difficult people, even the hurtful people, the people who have hurt us badly, Lord, we pray that we would see them through your eyes, that we would have compassion upon them, that we would forgive them, that we would be gracious to them and would extend to them the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, convict us. We so often put our love in the wrong things. Help us to love that which you love. Help us to care about that which truly matters. Help us to to love our comfort less than we love other people. Help us to continually be agents of grace and mercy to people who don't deserve it, people just like us. Thank you so much that you are so patient with us. Help us to learn this lesson from the end of the book of Jonah. In the name of your son, Jesus, who makes grace possible, we pray. Amen.